0: Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide to the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, theological foundations for transformative race conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorehead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication, and lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, join me and Daniel Yang on Frontlines. The Frontline program seeks to encourage and equip pastors and planners to better understand and navigate the current and future trends in church ministry. Each episode invites thought leaders and advanced practitioners in ministry to inform and inspire pastors and planners as they continue what they do on the field.
1: Well, hey, happy Monday or whatever day that you're listening to Frontlines on. This is Frontlines with uh, Peyton Jones and Daniel Yang, and I'll just introduce our guests in just a second, but really every week what we've been doing is we get together and we've been talking with some really, really fascinating and also leading experts on tackling some of the current issues that pastors and church leaders and church planners are facing. And so we've had some amazing discussions over the last few weeks. You can definitely go back and check out some of those uh, previous episodes as well. But today, man, we're so excited to have a great friend of ours, a dear friend of Exponential, of the Senn Institute. Uh, He is uh, Dr. Warren Bird, who's the Vice President of Research and Equipping at ECFA and uh dr birds written uh just multiple uh Uh, uh, books and publications. Um, And he's really, in my my mind, I mean, I I say this, you know, because I work closely with uh, Setzer. In my mind, uh, 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 Warren has been one of the research gurus that has helped us to really understand what God is doing at a qualitative and quantitative level. And so we're going to jump into some of that today as well. So, hey, Warren, thanks for being on with uh, Peyton Jones and I today. So welcome on to the show.
2: Thank you, Daniel. A joy to be here. I've watched a bunch of your uh, webinars or listened on podcasts, and it's a privilege to be in that uh, very esteemed group that I've learned a lot from.
0: Great. Well, let me let me add to that real quick that uh, I wouldn't be who I who I was without you, Doctor Bird. Um, you wrote that book uh, with Ed Stetzer, Viral Churches. That book impacted me deeply and changed the way I thought about everything. So I want to thank you for being a part of my journey.
2: Oh, praise God. That's why we do it. And that's why we put those tools in people's hands so they can dream great dreams and think I'm not the only crazy one. There are others out there like me.
1: Yeah, sure. Yep, absolutely. And one of the things that we like to do, uh, Warren, just to kind of relate to the leaders that are on this call that are listening to this podcast Later on, they'll download it because um, we really just re- want to relate to them at the most human level as possible. This is frontline. So we're talking about people doing real uh, front lines of ministry. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'll give you some time to think about it. Uh, maybe Peyton and I will answer it first. But the question today is, what is your biggest leadership bonehead decision that you ever made? Biggest leadership bone, like you just look. And I
2: have to limit it to one.
1: (laughs) You would be relatable if you had more, but yeah, we'll limit it to one—the one one that comes to mind. And um, I'll I'll share mine first. We'll go to Peyton, then we'll we'll come to you next. Um, You know, one of my probably biggest bonehead decisions that I made was I was leading young adults ministry at a, a church down in Texas, and I hired on an intern. And I didn't do a background check on on the intern. And so I should have, I think I just had a soft spot for him. I had been discipling him, uh, spent a lot of time with him, but I didn't really know much about his criminal history, his criminal history. And so I went on a trip to Vietnam and I kind of left the uh, local ministry that was going on the, those two weeks with him. And uh, he had borrowed my car. Uh, my wife had let him borrow my car. He had to do something late at night one of my taillights was out and um so he got pulled over by the cops and uh he had a police warrant uh uh, for his arrest for a burglary from years ago and so they pulled up that warrant and i got a phone call while i was in vietnam they said hey your intern is in jail for a burglary warrant from years ago so man boy i can tell you what i came back home uh, put together a little campaign bailed him out He obviously couldn't continue on in the internship, but I'm a big advocate now for doing a criminal background on anyone. So that's my story. Peyton, what about you? Well, So that's
2: why you had to do the background check on me before I came on. I guess
0: we're not going to disclose a report on what we found. We're going to let you talk about your report, but uh, probably the taxes for the last couple of years. That's right. Probably the biggest bonehead decision I ever made in ministry was to go into it, but You know, since that probably doesn't count as an answer, I have a similar story. In fact, this came up this week when we were doing uh, church planning assessment questions. And I brought up, hey, it's really important to ask about the criminal background because I uh, run a network of apostolic church planners called New Breed. And in my naivete in the beginning, I did not vet people for drug history because if, if you're you know, struggling with any kind of addiction. There's a cycle. And I had a guy, he was radical. He was cool. I mean, all, all of our planters are, are pretty frontline and radical. And this guy was flipping crack houses. And so we talk home church, when you're flipping crack houses and turn them into home church, it's important to know, did the planter himself struggle with crack cocaine addiction in his past? Well, one day they turned up and all the sound equipment in the church was gone. All the, all the it, 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 guitars and every, everything was gone. And Homeboy disappeared for a number of days. And his wife called up and said, he hasn't done this in years. And I said, wait, 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 what? <laughs> There's a history of this? And I learned that uh, the fingers pointed at this guy, right? Because I should have done my due diligence. So uh, it's good to know, Mr. Ding, that I am not the only knucklehead on this podcast. Normally, I can say I speak for all the knuckleheads on this podcast, but now I know that I'm in good company.
1: All right, Warren, let's hear from you.
2: Okay, I could give the easy one like I went to a funeral of the wrong person and expressed all these condolences with the wrong memory in mind and told these stories at the funeral about that. It was totally wrong person, Uh, but I'm sure we've all done that. Let me give a more serious one, and that is uh, when I was my first church planting assignment, I was leading... Uh, we had five Bible studies going, and I was so thinking, oh, this is awesome. And and because I was only leading one of them or two of them, and lay leaders were leading the rest. And, and I totally missed the point in that they were doing it only because of their poor, exhausted pastor who never got a night home, not because they saw themselves as as ministers of God, as gifted people using their gifts to extend the kingdom, to pastor a group, uh, I had just missed the boat on equipping people for who they were and and what God wanted to do through them. They were all like my helpers and everything came through me. And, and I'm just embarrassed to admit how many different ways that Warren-centeredness played out in pastoring, which is, you know, probably why I'm so attracted to some of the books that I've had the privilege of working on, because it's like, oh, if only I had known that and seen that.
0: That's yeah. really good, and I I, I I totally agree with you. And even, even my wife, like, you know, I used to say, oh, my church planting partner is. And meanwhile, my wife's like, what, what? What do you mean that like that dude's your church planning partner, you know? And uh, it always reminded me of something that uh, uh, Fred Rogers and Ginger, uh, young people have no clue what I'm talking about. They were, they were dancing people, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Uh, she said, remember everything Fred did, I did backwards and then high heels. And I've since learned to appreciate that my wife is my church planning partner. So um, Yeah.
1: Well, it's also, to, it's also good to know that the Dr. Warren Bird has some bonehead moments as well. And. <laughs> And now you get to study them. That you get to study and tell the stories of other people's bonehead mistakes. So uh, there's a couple of things we want to get to today, uh, Warren. That's uh, really you've been working on some amazing things, and really for the last two decades, have been the leading voice in understanding the megachurch specifically in U.S. and Canada. Uh, you all just put out a report uh, this week, and uh, or not this week, but uh, recently on megachurches, a, a recent study that you all did and. I know not everybody who's on this call uh, is a megachurch pastor. Uh, Most of the pastors that we all work with are faithfully serving in churches that are good-sized, right-sized churches. But it, it is helpful and interesting for us to understand what is happening with the megachurch trends, because there are some things that uh, are happening that we should know about that has relevant ministry decisions for, for many of us, especially for those of us who are transitioning into larger church models. So can you give us an idea from the report that you all just put out, what are some big things that you discovered that you think might be helpful for us right off the bat?
2: Well, I happen to have like 24 graphics that are in this uh, free download report. It's not quite out. You're getting the preview today. And if people watch this on replay, you can go to uh, ecfa.church surveys, plural and uh, download it. It's called Mega Church 2020, but but it's not just things for others to learn from. There are an awful lot of transferable lessons. Let me give you just a couple, let me pull up a couple of slides, and this is gonna be raw. I'm gonna do the screen share thing, and you're gonna see uh, kind of the stuff on the side. But, but first, the big news is that multiracial megachurches, are growing. We've done the same survey ever since the year 2000 when 21% were multiracial, defined as less than 80% being one one majority. And look how it's grown today 58% of large churches. And, and you go, well, wow, that's great for mega churches, but how? And that's where the next slide. Uh, comes in and we found that the greatest differentiator and, and we all know maybe some common things like who's up on the stage models you know how comfortable people feel at, at being there, which any size church can do. But but in part multiracial megachurches become that way because they intentionally try to be so. So it's not just a matter of, oh we need to put you know people different from us on the stage. But it's a heart commitment. It's, for many, a theological commitment that Revelation 5, 9, uh, Revelation 7, 9, about heaven being every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, you know, that should be happening right now. And let's figure out how to do that. So, that's a big lesson uh, from megachurches. Let me give you just one more. And that's, we saw a skyrocketing of community involvement, that megachurches are actively involved in their local community. And frankly, we found, oh, and and who's that with? It's with both other Christian groups and sometimes with other faith or, you know, secular uh, traditions. But the biggest thing we found, I can't find the slide real quick, is that um, there is growth in attendance growth, in direct relationship to community involvement you go well duh okay well let me say it's here i got numbers for you you get involved in your community being the salt and light of the earth and uh, people find jesus and and some of them find their way back to your church
0: that's really good dr bird what's the biggest news specifically for the church multiplication world
2: (laughs) great now you don't have to call me dr bird my father-in-law does still uh, but we're okay as he should (laughs) 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 yes I married his only kid so you know it's all or nothing with this uh, working out and so far so good Uh, now you're asking about church planters in particular so let me find that slide and uh, um, here we go all right we're gonna share sorry uh, for me talking this through out loud some of us don't chew gum and and uh, okay so did you open a satellite or branch location in the last five years? 22% did it five years ago. In this survey, 47%. So roughly half have gone multi-site. And now look at the bottom half of this visual. Same comparison. Did you help start a plant congregation in the last five years? So that would mean on the left, from 2010 to 2015, 18% from the last five years, 48%. Whoa, this is a significant investment. And I, I believe the Lord has worked through exponential to do so. Um, now, if you then were to correlate them and say, ah, but do they hurt each other? In other words, churches that start campuses, are they less likely to plant or more likely? And the answer is, The more you do one, the more you are likely to do more of the other. So it's all good. It's all working together. One is not the enemy of the other.
1: Yeah, I I think I've seen that uh, time and time uh, over and over again, where um, when multiplication is in the DNA of the church, it's going to happen at every level, leaders, uh, small groups. uh, And for those who have done uh, satellite for a while, you know, most megachurch pastors or those who are leading large churches, they're not starting campuses to, to lead their brand or to expand their brand. They're really doing it because of the need to, of the desire to stay in relationship with those people that they've been pastoring for years that live the town over. And so they're just now starting uh, satellite campuses I'm glad you, you pulled that point because there's this narratives oftentimes that some churches will start uh, satellite campuses, but they won't plant or vice versa. And it's help, helpful to know that there's actually a healthy uh, number of large churches that are doing both. So Warren, I want to ask you a question. I think we'll kind of get to you know the lessons learned uh, before we jump into some more data, because there's some really, really interesting data points. here. Yes.
2: There's like, it's, it's like a 50 page report and we did it so that, pastor can skim through look at the 24 visuals each of which has a little headline as you see and get the thing in like two minutes and then drill down on whatever you want to do so yes it's it's going to be a gold mine for a lot of people sorry well, I'm along, the lines of,
1: along the lines of what Peyton was asking some of the multiplication things what are what are some of the positive things that you're seeing uh, uh, larger churches do that really any church can do uh, and then, you know, so riff on that for a little bit, and then keep in mind in the back, what are some things that you're seeing happen, largest churches, larger churches doing that you think, I don't know if this is healthy for the body of Christ. So yeah. can you come at both of those? Sure, sure.
2: And and I don't want to be simplistic, but, but the heart at the bottom of it that says our job is not just to care for the flock. Our job is to enlarge the flock. There are people out there who need Jesus, and we need every aspect of our church. That needs to be at the heart. How do we extend the name of Jesus and the incredible good news of his, his forgiveness, salvation, and everything else that he does, driving, which causes large churches, the, the, the growth of large churches is just continuing Uh, to increase but it's it's being diffused it's like okay it's done by having multiple services it's done by having uh planting uh new churches by satellites by mergers one and for church planters and we're going to do the uh, webinar on this next week one in five church planters who ends up with a facility which most end up ending up comes by way of a merger. So we're going to talk about uh, that piece, but but that's just one more way that um, um, large churches are being intentional about what they do. Now I showed you the slide uh, a little bit earlier about the, that multi that mega churches have become multiracial and one of the things fueling it is the intentionality. I could show you similar slides about, Special needs ministry—that those churches that are growing fastest in caring for adults and children who have special needs are are not necessarily because of size, but because of intentionality that this is important and a priority for us.
0: That's amazing, Doctor Bird. Over the years, you know, obviously, um, for those that have been on these shows, you'll know I've, I've raised a few times I have a special needs child, and uh, that's huge, being able to accommodate simple things. Like uh, one of our daughter's things is she's celiac. So when all the kids get um, snacks, she, she has to have, you know, something that's gluten-free or she gets really ill. But, um, but I've, I've literally witnessed uh, a church in the U.K., that went intentionally um, after people with special needs just because someone from one of the care homes started attending and, and said, there's nowhere for us to go to church. I mean, well, nobody- and,
2: and it's worse. Um, when I did the book with Tim Lucas called Liquid Church uh, on six um, ways that they're saturating their community for Christ. One is special needs. And we, we looked in the research and found how many people have said, you know, I stopped going to that church because they weren't able to take care of my family or worse, they asked me not to come because it didn't work. So here's the graph if you wanna look at the background, those of you watching my my video that shows the the inching up of special needs uh, ministries in proportion to the level of uh, intentionality.
1: Wow. Well, and that makes sense, though, because if you're really um, if you're really breaking to a segment of your community where churches in the past have not done a a great job serving, and I, I would definitely say that those with special needs, those with accessibility issues, um, that the church has not always been very good at that. It makes sense that uh, churches can grow and do grow when they begin meeting some of those needs. I think that speaks to a larger point that you made earlier, Warren, uh, about diversity within the megachurches, and I'm sure that presents both challenges. You know, obviously, there's a, 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 a great uh, testimony that comes with being a diverse church, but in in this week, and then in the two weeks ahead of us, we're in a political season right now, um, I, megachurch uh, or larger churches have often been known to sit on the sidelines when it comes to being vocal on Uh, you know uh, certain issues why do you think that is is there anything from your research that helps us to understand um, the 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 political uh, you know tensions that a larger church
2: might be experiencing well we did ask and find that megachurches are not monolithic uh, politically uh, much less so in this era than in uh, previous years Um, but but politics aside a clean trend is the more focused the vision, the more aligned the church around that vision, the more the needs are met and the growth of the church occurs. And so whether it's clarity of vision that, you know, our church does this and it happens to be political, or our church does this with special needs, or our church does this with um, meeting uh, some other need in our community or within our own fellowship... It's that clarity of vision that large churches compared to all sized churches are much higher on being able to agree that our church has clear vision uh, and mission. Uh, Just one correlate is we looked at churches that say they are spiritually vital and alive. Now, of course, every church would say that. So, you know, the disagree, strongly disagree was like 1% of the churches and the, the just plain out, um, not no opinion was a very small amount. And then the agrees and the strongly agrees uh, were the two biggest groups, but we limited it just to those that strongly agreed that our church is spiritually vital and alive. And the the amount of clarity of vision, emphasis on scripture, uh, the character of the worship, just so many other things in the church, all align uh, together. And so that momentum comes uh, is related to clarity of vision.
0: Thank you. Um, So uh, for those of you watching who want to give a question to Warren about anything to do with uh, Megachurch, getting the report is Megachurch 2020 if you have a question, don't worry about it being too broad or too narrow, because as we talked with Warren before, he said, look, this is my passion. Like I'm oozing this, I'm bursting at the seams. So uh, one of the questions I asked uh, Warren at the beginning was uh, what percentage of churches are mega churches? Um, And I want to just kind of revisit that for our audience so that those that are kind of Wondering, well, how how much of the megachurch and what percent of the po- population could you just go over
2: that again? Sure. Well, let's let's start pre pandemic. That if you passed uh, seventy five people bodies uh, noses, um, you're already at the fifty percentile in terms of church size. If you are averaging two hundred or more people on a weekend together, adults and children you're already at the 85th percentile. Now, a megachurch, by definition, is 2,000 people and above, adults and children on a typical weekend. There are roughly 1,750 of those out of 320,000 churches. So what that means is one-tenth of 1% of the the Protestant churches in the United States are megachurches. And yet, and yet... Uh, last weekend or <laughs> before the pandemic kicked in one out of 10 people who went to a Protestant church went to one of those churches. So their influence is huge, but the actual amount of large churches is quite small. Uh,
1: uh, Warren, let me, let me follow up on that because um I wonder if there is a, I think there's a missiological difference between um, one large church and then a lot of smaller churches. But I, sociologically, and this goes into the question, because you said, you mentioned there are 320 Protestant churches, 30, twenty thousand Protestant churches in America, which roughly puts the church to population ratio at one to a thousand, you know, give or take, you know, maybe, um, and but our population is fastly it's 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 increasing i think by 2050 we're projecting minimum 400 million which means we would basically need 400,000 churches or so um do you think there's any distinct advantage to planting more and more larger churches or more and more smaller churches or is it both um sociologically what do you think um larger churches is doing to our, our mindset when we're thinking we actually need more churches to reach more kinds of people?
2: That's a really good question. And uh, and first answer, whatever you're doing to reach people for Christ is good. Uh, we're in favor of uh, But most denominations, their closure rate is about 3%, between 2 and 3% each year, which means just to stay even, they need to, to be planting three new churches for every 100 existing churches roughly that's out there and almost no denomination is anywhere close to that now it's true that 20 some odd percent of people are part of non-denominational and that's where a lot of these networks that exponential especially serves but we it serves denominations as well so so all that to say um there's a long ways to go. And if someone says, do we have enough new churches? The, the resounding answer from a research perspective is absolutely not. Now, is a community more likely, if you forced a choice to say, is a large church more likely to reach more people than you know the same number of people but in a bunch of smaller churches? Assuming health, as an equal, and that's a big assumption, the smaller churches, the new churches, the church plans, are gonna grow at a higher rate and have a higher conversion rate than the larger churches. But could the smaller churches do more, go farther, reach higher, better with help from larger churches Yes, indeed. the the level of partnership of not having to reinvent the wheel and of okay, yeah, we'll send your worship team. We'll loan you this. You know, we'll we'll pray you off for this. Uh, it makes a huge difference.
0: What are America churches doing best that smaller churches can learn from?
2: the the uh, you, you asked that question is a good question, but let's also address the flip side of it: of what are the areas of concern that other churches can learn from as well. But on the good side, we already looked at community involvement. We looked at intentional evangelism. We looked at intentionality about a lot of things from being multiracial to special needs ministry. Uh, we uh, Let me drill down about small groups because you get bigger by getting smaller. And let me find that uh, one of my slides about where we ask churches their intentionality how central are small groups to your strategy of Christian discipleship and spiritual formation. If I'm remembering the question wording, right. And, uh, you know what? I think we'd have more fun if instead of me looking for the slide while while I'm what they call dieseling <laughs> to find them, let me just flip through them and uh, tease you that uh, you'll get, you'll enjoy uh, seeing it as well. So uh, share screen. Here we go. All right. Uh, so, the, oh, as long as we're on this one, the longer the pastor is at the church, the less likely to merge plant or open campuses you know that's kind of on the downside uh, but that's really important to to uh factor in so let me get the uh uh the one about small groups okay small groups as a central strategy in megachurches we asked the question you know how central is it to your strategy of christian uh nurture and spiritual formation good theological concept. And look how from the year 2000 until today, 90% today are saying we can't do our mission without a healthy small group system. And again, that's not unique to a, a large church, any size church that has a group within the group. The, you know, there are 57 one another's, love one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. The majority of those happen best in a small group context, not to mention the leadership development component, which is probably the largest uh, long-term fruit that comes out of small groups. Let me show you just one more. Increased involvement in small groups. Look, we we've, we divided those large churches between those that have less than 40% adult involvement and more than 40% adult involvement. And the more than is the blue bar. So you get... With, with a healthy emphasis on small groups, you have more volunteers. You're better involved at recruiting new people. You have more discussion about talking about faith with those that aren't part of the church. You have more newcomers to the church in the last five years. You tend to grow more rapidly. You have more service in the local community. You incorporate newcomers better into the congregations. The congregation as a whole is more willing to op- be open to new challenges. The congregation emphasizes living out one's faith more in all areas of life. And the congregation uh, emphasizes worship attendance more. So that's that's like a night and day of what a healthy small group system can do for a church of any size.
1: So, so Warren, are you seeing over the last 20 years of your research, different megachurch models emerge? Because I think for a lot of people, when they think of megachurch, they're thinking of a, of a large building and a lot of people coming in for you know a ninety-minute service, uh, and then I think we've seen over the last you know few years the multi-site strategy. Are you what? What's the what's the emerging mega churches looking like? I heard you also say that they're becoming more non-denominational as we see more uh, uh, mega churches you know uh, uh, emerge on the scene. That a lot of them are are non-denominational churches as. Um,
2: well, well they're pre- more are presented as non-denominational. I mean, um, Saddleback is Southern Baptist. God knows it. Rick Warren knows it. And I think a lot of their leaders know it, but that's not widely known. Uh, Craig Rochelle's Life Church is uh, Evangelical Covenant. Well, you know, how many people know that? So the, an awful lot of churches are either part of a denomination, large churches, or are strongly affiliated with, you know, one of the many new networks, Acts 29 or um, – and we could rattle off a bunch. So um, there is two-thirds of megachurches do have an affiliation, but that's not really your question. Your question is what is the future, you know, what what is changing about how megachurches do church? Okay, so the stereotype that says, you know, that – let me see if I can pull up a slide. Yes, uh, here we go. That says that the <clears> – <throat> That in this gargantuan sanctuary, uh, you know, the compact center with Joel Osteen, not picking on him or uh, or the church that he leads, but but the average megachurch, its largest room seats only twelve hundred people, and uh, it grows by having multiple services there, multiple campuses. And spinning off and planting churches all along the way, so um, that's one of many uh, unhelpful stereotypes mm-hmm. about how large churches function. Wow! So
0: that's really interesting, um, and that I'm sure that goes back to when you you raised earlier. You said another question is um, concerns about the megachurch. I'm sure that's one of them. Um, What are some of the other concerns from the research that tell us, hey, megachurch, you got to look at this, you know, we got to talk?
2: Okay. This one is not megachurch alone. This one parallels all churches. But uh, I want to start here because we documented it. The frequency of church attendance. You're not seeing the perfect attendance pen that says I was there all 52 weeks this year. Um, not happening. Now, does that mean people aren't going to church? Maybe they're, you know, at their kid's church in another town, or, or there's a divorce where you're splitting churches, or there's travel, and, and or there's soccer, and you're you're doing it online uh, that week, but you're part of it. So, so that doesn't mean spiritual vitality necessarily is decreasing. It might. We can dig into that later. But the frequency of attendance, which means I make my big presentation this weekend at church, but only two-thirds of my most core people saw it or heard it. You know, well, do I have to repeat it? You know, well, then what about all the people who saw it last week? So it's a real communication challenge, and it's a discipleship Mm -hmm challenge. How how do you disciple kids in a kids program when they are, you know, two out of every three weeks at best uh, on average? And you got some that are every week and some that are are every one out of every three weeks. That is a real challenge that all churches need to deal with. Now— Can
0: I ask you, Warren, um, on this, because I know this is data, right? You're looking at the data. Um, How much of the data are you able to interpret on this? Like, for example, are you able to, uh, is there any research as to why the attendance has been down or have you been able to speculate? And also because this is kind of your your field of expertise, um, what, You mentioned communication, tipped your hand a bit, that that, that's really, that's a key issue here that gets raised, but what can pastors do? So why is this downward trend and what can pastors do?
2: Okay, so we we took several paragraphs in the report that people can download starting later this week uh, at ecfa.church slash surveys. And we we give a bunch, let me rattle off a few. Um, The whole cultural reinforcement of you know church as a good thing to do is off the competition you know that how many of us have had to choose between our kids soccer game schedule got announced for sunday morning versus uh you know whereas 20 years that just wasn't happening the uh the options of of travel and uh, broken families where people go to multiple churches, or, or families, you know, it, it used to be that you would see much of your family who lived in the same town or area, and you'd all go to the same church. Well, the more dispersed we get, the less that occurs. So it's any number of factors. Can we rank them? Not at this point, but I'm sure somebody out there uh, is working on how to do that. Uh, but but the key is, and Kerry Newhoff and so many others have been been good at this. Is now that the online has become established as such a a, a uh, well done, well it's well done in the sense of rebroadcasting Sunday morning. But the next stage in online, I predict, is that is that instead of it being a in person thing that we broadcast online, we're going to think how do I speak to an online audience and create a format for that so it will become more and more different from the Sunday morning in person. And sometimes it'll be integrated. I was at a church, uh, my wife and I, when the we live in New York, uh, as the pandemic uh, allowed a church going, we went to all these churches that were reopening. And one church of, uh, I don't know, 80 people pre-pandemic, um, they, they had their in-person and they said, and now for the scripture reading, you know, so-and-so, who is uh, very great with child and, you know, couldn't come today because of that. You know, she and her husband are going to read the scriptures today, and so the in-person audience patched to the online audience, and we got to see this couple read scripture, and then we came back to the sanctuary. That interspersing of uh, intertwining is going to happen more. Uh, But the in-person has to become more compelling for what what can I get in-person that I can only get in-person, and how is that— the structure going to be built to help emphasize that quality.
1: Yeah. And obviously the pandemic has accelerated a lot of that for, um, churches, my, my church plant that we're part of this past week, we commissioned out some missional communities and we prayed over them. And one of the persons who were who was supposed to pray for our group uh, was quarantining. So we just passed her in and did exactly the thing that you just talked about right there. And I feel like the pandemic is um, is accelerating so much of that. One of the things that we Uh, through the sentence Institute and Catapult Group, what we did early on in the pandemic was we just helped churches to understand how to not just think of yourselves as a, um, a large gathering church, but how do you become a decentralized network of smaller units? And you, you just made mention that mega churches are becoming better at that. And small groups ministry is essential to that. One thing I want to ask you about is, uh, is, is kind of the, the, uh, the next iteration of megachurch pastor leaders, uh, what does that look like? Because for all intents and purposes, a lot of our current megachurches were uh, planted and pastored by Boomer and Exer uh, leaders. And are, are you seeing a transition of leadership generation amongst lead pastors in larger churches Um and if you are, and you may not have the data on this, but you- uh, I do. Oh, you do? Oh, great. Exactly. So,
2: so keep framing the question. I'm, I'm pulling sure, up yeah. the slide.
1: So I'm curious to see what that leadership transition is looking like. And then based on your interaction, is the leadership profile changing in any particular way uh, from the previous generations?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, to get there, we, we could first- debunk a bunch of stereotypes. You know, the media will tell us, oh, you know, the era of the mega church is gone. You know, it's just an, an aging uh, baby boomer thing. And, and that is just not the case. In fact, the average age of the senior pastor in our survey went down a couple of years, not up a couple of years uh, in this survey. So, and, and we're finding that younger leaders uh, can, uh, those that are going this route have built and grown larger churches much faster uh, than the previous generation. So kind of the the quick, uh, uh, Tim Lucas, uh, Liquid Church, I'm on their board, 12 years from launch to just before the pandemic, uh, 5,500 attendants. You know, in previous generations that would have been unheard of, but today there are a lot of people like that. So debunking a lot of the stereotypes to say, okay, In reality, uh, large churches are for now, for this moment, now I don't know what the pandemic is going to do to it, but for uh, up until the pandemic, uh, we're a steadily increasing part of uh, the American population church experience. Now, within that, how is the handoff occurring? Um, First, let me give one of the sobering downsides a megachurch's greatest growth occurs between years 5 and 20 for the lead pastor. In other words, we took lead pastor and speed of growth, and we charted it out, and we found that roughly somewhere around 16, the the crest is, and it begins going down. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. Uh, But, um, you know, early years ago, people would say, oh, pastor, you know, stay longer than the three years because your spiritual fruit hasn't really kicked in. And that's true. But it, then on the other side of the equation, you know, when is time to pass the baton? So, um, and, and are there ways to to continue at your peak while bridging in someone who is younger? And the answer is yes. Um, in particular, we ask about succession preparation. And here is the question. And, and we ask, For where your church is right now in relation to its pastor's age, how well do you think the church is doing in its succession preparation? And uh, we came out with numbers for that, but then we thought the most interesting thing to do was to sort that by the pastor's age. Now, that's not to imply that every pastor, you know, stays at the church until retirement. You have many prominent examples of people who led a ministry and then God Called them to something else, to be a church planter champion or or to start an entrepreneurial ministry, and that's great. But um, in general, uh, the pathway is you tend to stay there a long time. And the green bars compare the same question in 2020 versus the gray bars in 2015. And you see at every age, uh, churches are now saying the elephant is, is being identified and dealt with in terms of uh, Succession preparation, and re- in reality, and I think you're aware that William Vanderblumen and I did the book next pastoral succession that works, which I got to do fun research for. That that we found that it's really a leadership development issue. You know, if if every single person in the church is being challenged, 2 Timothy 2.2, how are you reproducing yourself? How are you reproducing new leaders? Then inevitably that works its way up to the senior leadership team and to the senior pastor um, office itself.
0: Dr. Bird, I want to ask. um,
2: Yeah, you have to shut me up because I can just – Keep going for no, a, this a, is this is month.
0: absolutely fascinating, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a question out of left field because I think many of us have seen a trend in succession of um, mega church pastors handing off their churches to their their children, yeah. as if it's a family business, and yeah. I think you know nepotism is a is a real concern. Um, you know, it, it, it does usually end up being an abuse of, of authority or power. I'm not saying that it can't ever be your son, uh, but, um, or, or daughter, but is there, uh, anything that you guys saw in your research? Did you do, were you able to, to research how many people are handing down to kids and if there's any kind of checks and balances in that, or was that part of the research at all?
2: Great question. Uh, Two answers. This research, no. But the William Vanderboom and Warren Byrd next research, yes, we did a whole chapter and a half on how do you do family successions. Because as you say, there can be healthy ways Yes. I mean, one of my kids grew up in the home, knows the church. The church, there's a trust value. There's a, there's, there's a lot of things potentially going for it. There's a lot of blindness on the part of the lead pastor um, and a lot of privilege given. You know, I, I talked right. to a pastor's kid who says, oh, you know, I got to do this and that in the church. And, and I said, was it because you were the pastor's kid or did every single person with your level of spiritual hunger and experience get the same level of privileges, so that they could grow in their walk with the Lord, their leadership ability, and so forth? And he said, uh, "Yeah, I guess because I having that last name that everybody knows sure opened a lot of doors, and my dad opened any that you know uh, needed opening." Okay, well got downsides to it another piece of it is is the church board and leadership structure and you know it's it's like people say well if i don't have this last name or married into it you know i can only go so far and worse you've got integrity stuff Now, ecfa stands for the evangelical council on financial accountability and the way you become an ecfa member is you agree to seven standards of integrity and one of those standards has to do with your board And it's that we want to have a board where the majority of people are family members. They can be on it, but they can't be the majority, Uh, or are employees. And you say, well, why is that so bad? Okay, well, who's going to set the senior pastor's salary? Uh, The board does. Hmm. Got a little conflict of interest there, or worse, um, who's going to tell the pastor no Uh, if you can't break inside because you're not a family member or an employee and employees aren't going to say no at the same level because they're going to lose their job potentially if the pastor doesn't receive uh, these gentle words of rebuke. So all that to say, we have a slide that shows that with integrity issues such as having an independent board, um, giving goes up and other uh, levels. Well, let me just show you that slide. Of of integrity, uh, happened. So here's that slide, and you see that that um, when you have an independent board and a uh, oh that's uh, that's not the right slide. Uh, oh well, we'll uh, we'll come back to that another time. You can read it in the report. You are muted, Daniel. Daniel, I'm sure it's that. brilliant. There you are. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Uh, and we'll also put up the
1: link because you, you all just released a uh, uh, ECFA report on how churches are doing in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, so we'll sure yeah.
2: That. Can, I, it, can I give 30 seconds on that? Sure, we yeah. ask, what is your outlook for finances in the next three months? Are you optimistic, uncertain, or pessimistic? And churches, above all sizes... The vast majority were optimistic. Next group was much smaller, was uncertain. And the tiniest group, like 12%, was uh, negative. So that says that, that God is providing through the pandemic. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And praying that we utilize those resources for multiplication. Uh, well, this has been really good, Warren. I want to uh, end with one last question from our listeners. And this is actually from probably a friend of uh, yours that you know, uh, Sherry Surratt and we're all really appreciative of the Surrattes and, and the work that they've done, uh, Jeff and, 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 the brothers there, but, um, uh, Awesome Sherry, couple wrote some awesome books. Absolutely. I- Sh- sharing her work with um, Orange and, and uh, you know, on parenting. And this is really what she wants to ask about. She's she wants to know if there's a correlation in growing churches uh, between those who take family ministry um, as a perspective. So they might hire a family ministry pastor Uh, And they're very intentional with partnering with families versus uh, churches that just kind of like, you know, provide uh, children's and student ministry, but maybe there's less intentionality about investing in staff and actually working through building strategies for that. So do you see correlation between intentional strategies around ministries and church growth?
2: Uh, I don't have any numbers on that. I hope somebody will research it uh, like Orange or somebody else that's got all these networks. I strongly suspect there is, but that's only part of it. We have a huge single adult population and churches tend to wanna to be the champions of marriage and, and, and rightly so, but that means we tend to hire married people and, and the single adult population is underrepresented statistically in churches, and whatever we do for families, we need to figure out how to do in ways that engage the single adult population as well.
1: That's really good, and I I think a a part of this is uh, whether uh, if you're an urban core church that might be a little bit different than one that's in the suburbs, and I would imagine that the different needs of transient cities are going to be a little bit more different from sprawling, uh, suburban regions, but, but I want to, I want to press into that just a little bit, uh, Warren. Um, so then are there general trends that you've seen that are contributing to, uh, the growth of churches? Um, what are some of the reasons why, uh, some churches are evangelistically effective? I mean, is it, is it just, Uh, preaching styles? Is it the services that they provided? We touched on a little bit of that uh, earlier, but do you see some general trends um, for why churches are growing?
2: Yeah, let me take this survey hat off and put on the book and research I did with Carl George about how to break growth barriers. And that book, uh, two-thirds of it has nothing to do with, you know, what do I do to break, you know, 50, 200, 400, 800, 1,000? That's aside. The main part of the book is how strong are you in your harvest mentality? Do you really believe that God has people that need Jesus for eternity, that your church can reach the people of your church? Do you really believe that there is a harvest to be had? Um, and second. Leader, oh leader, are you like Warren Bird in my earlier personal example, where you are the hub of everything, where ministry comes through you, or is your focus, you know, are you the minister or the minister maker? Are you the shepherd or the hander out of shepherd crooks? Are you the discipler or the disciple maker? Are you the hero or the hero maker? And that mentality, the Ephesians four eleven and 12, the role of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, makes all the difference in terms of whether a church focuses on caring for whoever comes in the door versus says, no, we've got to figure out how to connect the unchanging good news of Jesus Christ with our ever-changing culture.
1: That's a really good word. And I think that regardless of whatever church size you're at, uh, if you're one of our listeners, uh, there is a sense in which uh, the more we dig in with prayer, the more that we dig in with um, uh, working with our leadership, it is about uh, stewarding that vision uh, across the board. And everybody is a minister. Everybody's called. To reach the community. And I think to, to the effect that we're actually doing that in our churches, regardless of that's explosive growth or gradual growth, we're going to see the kingdom expanded. So, uh, Dr. Warren Berg, we are. We're so thankful uh, for you, for your work, uh, for your work uh, previously at Leadership Network and now at the uh, ECFA, keeping churches not just accountable, but looking forward and growing and being equipped. So, thank you so much for this time. And, and Peyton, we'll hand it off to you yeah so guys thanks again
0: on behalf of exponential for being here and also if you want to catch uh warren again next week he's going to be discussing mergers i just happen to be dealing with a merger with one of my church plans right now his book there he's holding it up it's called better together that's his new one what's the subtitle on that Warren? well
2: it's jim tomberland is the lead author but making church mergers work expanded and updated edition which means every story every chapter every everything all we have all this big research project that went into it and we'll talk about it next week And I've been a part of two church mergers,
0: but next week I'm about to find out how I did it all wrong. And uh, if you want to find out how to do it right, make sure that you show up. It's going to be an honor to have you two weeks in a row. I mean, you are, as uh, Daniel said in the beginning, just a reservoir of wisdom and a lifetime of ministry knowledge. So we appreciate it.
2: Well, I got a scar right here from my first merger. It's still there. So... Let let's prevent some of these scars I, I thought
0: I thought I saw a little bit of a like a knife hilt sticking out right there <laughs> through the jumper, but uh anyways, hey uh for those of you that are enjoying these uh podcasts, just so you know we've got a series of round tables coming up here um in the fall. If you've caught our Candid Conversations uh, discussion on Thursdays, then you'll know that our fall roundtables are gonna be on the theme of diversity. Now, what's important for you to know is also in future, get used to these roundtables, where in 100 cities across America, we're gonna have 100 different roundtables. That means we're gonna discuss diversity in your local context, uh, relevant to you. And people are already raving, we've already had some, people are saying how good they were, people are enjoying, this online format, which is really a prep, a taster. So don't be surprised in future we start throwing church planning roundtables and all kinds of different things, maybe small group roundtables. Things are really going to accelerate multiplication in the kingdom of God. But you can go to multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. We still have the discounted rate of 30 nine dollars uh available for you and if you want to do groups of five or ten there's special pricing on the round tables for that as well so be sure to head on over to that on behalf of exponential again daniel myself and dr bird we'd like to give you a very warm thank you for joining us today and we'll see you next week on Frontlines. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.